My mouth is usually in, so. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, we are in Genesis chapter 14. No, we didn't make it to Hebrews, Charles. <laughs> we are in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, last week we looked <clears throat> at the first uh, 16 or so verses of the chapter which was the war of the kings, and we're going to finish that story today in the last part of the chapter, beginning in verse 17. But uh, but it is important that we kind of review and think through a little bit about what we talked last week. So, what do you remember from our lesson last week? There you go. Live in peace, but prepare for war. That, that's what Abram did. He lived there in uh, Hebron and minding his own business, but he had his men trained and ready to go in case he needed. He lived in a dangerous world. What else? We see that beginning of that progressive compromise in the life of Lot. And then we'll, as we go on in the story and we encounter him from time to time, we'll see that he, he keeps compromising more and more until he actually becomes quite influential in the city, uh, in the city of Sodom. Obviously not influential enough. But so, What else? <clears throat> Okay. Okay. Good. Good. That's uh. You managed to say that in about one sentence. It took me how long to say that? <laughs> the kings from over there. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's true. There were four kings from Mesopotamia who, uh, actually, one king in particular that we're particularly concerned about, a guy by the name of Ketelamar. You you may pronounce it Chetelamar because in the New American it it spells it C H, but I think the correct pronunciation is Ketelamar. And, uh, and he apparently had uh, control uh, over uh, at least that southern portion of the King's Highway that runs down through Transjordan down there at the uh, southern end of the Dead Sea because he had, uh, he, had, he had subjected the five kings of the Pentapolis, those five cities there at the southern end of the Dead Sea. And, uh, and uh, so he gets his buddies, <clears throat> the uh, three other kings from Mesopotamia, and they come over and and ultimately go to war with these five kings uh, from the Pentapolis there. Uh, what, what precipitated that war? Okay, they, it says uh, simply in the, in the uh, text, it says that they rebelled, and we assume that basically the gist of that is that they had refused to pay the annual tribute that they were obligated to pay uh, <clears throat> to, the, uh, to their suzerain king. Okay, what else? <clears throat> I wasn't here, but did someone calculate how big Abram's household was? Uh, I mentioned that it was probably in the vicinity of a thousand or so. It was quite sizable. Yeah, we had eight, uh, 318 men trained for war, and so of course, presumably women and small children and other sorts of none of which are his own his own heir, of course, but uh, or his own descendant. But yeah, pretty sizable household. Yeah. I thought it was a little ironic. I mean, still 300 fighting men versus these armies that apparently come all the way from the Mesopotamia and not getting beat. That 
he had the courage to do that, and yet just a few years earlier when he went to Egypt, he was totally scared. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I thought about that too, and, I, and, uh, and, and as we'll see, I think, in today's lesson, I think the encounter in Egypt, the thing that happened in Egypt, I think he learned some lessons from that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's some evidence of that in the passage that we're going to look at today. So, so maybe that explains that, but that is a good point, Mike. That he, that, uh, he does it again, I know, he does do it again. He, yeah, he falters, like all of us. Sometimes we, we think we've learned our lesson and then, we, and then we falter. So, yeah, he will do it again. We'll see that in chapter 20, I believe it is. So. What else? Yes. When he won the battle, uh-huh. he held in his hand the control of the wealth of the entire transferred region. Yeah. With that king's highway was tremendous. Yeah. And, uh, but he did it all. Yeah. He knew that that was not God's promise. So there was progress. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the encouraging thing that I see, and one of the encouraging th- things in Abram's life, he is he is making progress, he is growing spiritually, and and so he after this uh, uh, after the uh, tremendous success he has, he and the and the allies, the three guys that went with him, and presumably they had some men with them also. Uh, so at any rate, this army goes up and they defeat the Mesopotamian kings, and uh, I, I failed to mention this last week, but. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear from Hebrews that the, king, the Mesopotamian kings were actually killed because in Hebrews chapter 7 it refers to the slaughter of the kings. So apparently the kings themselves were killed in that battle. So he comes back from this battle which occurred up in uh, what is now northern Palestine or in the northern area of Canaan and, he, and they routed the, routed the Mesopotamians and they chased them off as far as north of Damascus and then he returns. And as he returns, then you have to think about, and this is the thing that Rick was mentioning, you have to think about the fact that Abram now has under his control, in his hands, so to speak, he has all the wealth of the Transjordan because these kings have defeated not only the five kings of the, of the Pentapolis, but they've defeated uh, six other, they've engaged in six other battles that they were triumphant in. So they have plundered all these uh, six other cities or regions, as well as the five cities of the Pentapolis. So they've taken all this wealth and and uh, and captured the peoples uh, all the way along the King's Highway. They're traveling down uh, through the Transjordan. Last week we talked about how strategically important the King's Highway was as the main means of, of military and economic communication between Mesopotamia and Egypt. So it's a strategic highway. And now... Abram, as a result of this tremendous victory that God has given to him, uh, has in his hands all this wealth of the Transjordan because he's recovered all of this plunder. So he has all this wealth and he, and, and he also has the peoples. That's clear. He has some, uh, uh, the people who were taken captive. Uh, in other words, those that weren't, uh, uh, weren't soldiers who had fled from the battle, etc. But, but basically, the peoples of the Transjordan. He had so he had the peoples, and he had all the produce and the and the goods of the Transjordan in his hand. And he had just defeated four powerful Mesopotamian kings and killed them. So here's a guy with just tremendous political and economic and military power and influence, and it's all in his hand. But as Rick was pointing out, the thing we commented on last week is he, 
he knows, he understands, somehow he has the discernment to know that this is not how God intends to fulfill the promise that he's given to him. And so, as we see in the lesson this week, he just lets it all go. (laughs) He just lets it all go because it's not the promise of God. Okay? Anything else that you remember from last week? Stuck out. Yes? Instinctively cling to it. Yeah. The fact that he didn't do this, yeah. that he, he kept his eye on the prize. You know, yeah. He knew yeah. this was not the thing God wanted him to focus on. It's, yeah. just, it's a marvel. Yeah. And I think of, I, uh, as I was thinking about that yesterday or this morning sometime, I, uh, the passage came to my mind there in Philippians 2 where it talks about the Lord who, who though He was equal with God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. <laughs> and I thought about that verse that, <clears throat> that the Lord wasn't grasping or clinging to His divine prerogatives when He came down to act redemptively on our behalf. And, and you see that in Abram. That he, that he, just has a, he just has a higher value system. And so, and so even though He has all, this, all these things that we in the world think are so important, he didn't feel compelled to grasp or to cling on. He just lets them go because they're not the promise of God. He just All he wants is the promise of God. All he really wants is a descendant. <laughs> and, and that's what he needs. His motives were pure. I mean, he was just going to get locked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Very similar to David. God promised him he would be king and he had to kill Saul. Yeah, really. Everybody's saying, here's your shot, and he wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. There's a little bit of a clue in verse 22, I think, when he says, I have sworn to the Lord, uh, New America says, possessor of heaven or earth or creator of heaven. Mm-hmm. So I think in some way he may be identifying with God. That yeah. God owns everything. Absolutely. So, you know, what's this little bit of yeah. some more stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. Which is a stark contrast to the health wealth teaching that uses him as an example yeah. of yeah. gaining all this wealth and that's what God wants. Yeah. I'm sure we'll discuss more as we go on yeah. through his life. Yeah, sure. Okay, now there are a couple things that I want to expand on from last week's lesson. Uh, uh, one thing that I don't think I made really uh, sufficiently clear, and I wanted to go back and kind of clarify it because I may have left a wrong impression, and then uh, and then to draw out uh, one or two other things from last week's lesson uh, so we can set the stage for the things we want to talk about today. But last week we were talking about, uh, we got back on the issue of covenants and treaties that we've talked so much about as we've been going through Genesis, and we were talking again about the parity treaties and the suzerain vassal treaties, okay? And uh, and in the uh, in the course of that discussion, we talked about the the suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain being a, a great powerful king or emperor or ruler of some sort, and and the vassal kingdoms that were under him, and that typically these vassal kingdoms uh, <coughs> would be the, the the arrangement in the covenant would be such that the uh, the the vassal king would be granted the title of king. He would still he would still possess the title of king. He would still rule over his people. Uh, their culture and their religion was pretty much left intact. But they were still obligated 
to the uh, to the suzerain, to the to the greater king. They were obligated to him to provide, for example, uh, access through their tor- territory and military aid if the if the suzerain desired it. Uh, but particularly and especially, uh, they were obligated to pay this tribute that we talked about last week, which was typically a percentage of the produce or the, if you will, the gross national product of the vassal kingdom. Okay, So they were obligated to pay this tribute. Now, and, and in discussing that whole uh, uh, suzerain-vassal treaty or covenant concept last week, uh, I think I may have left the impression that those were always coercive uh, arrangements, that the, that the suzerain would just come in and he'd take over and, 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 uh, and, and he'd basically kind of throw his weight around so that they were basically usually coercive treaties. And oftentimes they were that. They were coercive covenants, but not always. And there are examples and cases even in Scripture of of uh, suzerain vassal treaties that were voluntary and even at least one I can think of that was initiated by the vassal. Okay? An example of that is the story in the book of Joshua where the Gibeonites come and, and implore, implore uh, uh, Joshua to enter into a suzerain vassal treaty with them where they would be the vassals and Joshua and the Israelites would be the uh, would be the suzerain kingdom. Okay, uh, the reason, that, actually, that, that whole story—if you remember that story—the Gibeonites were actually being deceptive. They dressed up, made it look like they'd come from a long distance and stuff, because they were afraid they were going to get killed. They were afraid they were going to get wiped out. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to enter into this covenant agreement, this covenant treaty, if you will, this suzerain vassal treaty with Joshua, so that Joshua and the Israelites would be obligated to be their protector. Okay, and so that's a, that's an example. Of a of a suzerain vassal treaty in which the vassal uh, wanted to be in the treaty, desired to be in the treaty, desired to pay the tribute, and desired the protection of the suzerain. Okay, uh, there was deception involved there. But what is significant is that finally, when when the Gibeonites do uh, end up then in peril, they're being attacked by their neighbors. They run to Joshua, and even though they had entered into the covenant deceptively and they deceived Joshua to some degree, Joshua still felt a degree of loyalty and obligation to them, and the Israelites went and protected and took care of the Gibeonites. Okay, so I want to make that point clear because it because it has some bearing on our lesson today, and will have even more bearing as we move on in to chapter 15 and some of the things that we'll learn about uh, uh, Abram's relationship with God in chapter 15. So uh, I just want to make that point clear. Another thing I wanted to mention that is important, and again because it has some bearing on the things we're going to look at today, is that in a suzerain vassal covenant or treaty, uh, once the the covenant is entered into or the treaty is entered into, then both parties have a an obligation to one another. Okay, uh, the suzerain has an obligation to protect, to provide military protection and that sort of thing for the vassal. The vassal has an obligation, as I said, to allow the suzerain to bring his armies through their territory or whatever, and he has an obligation to pay a tribute and that sort of thing. Okay, so there's this loyalty that is required both ways. Now, a, a, a suzerain, he could enter into a suzerain vassal treaty with a number of different vassals, okay? So he could have many different vassals or vassal kingdoms. 
But a vassal could only have a, re- a covenant relationship, a suzerain-vassal relationship with one suzerain. Okay? So the vassal, he, uh, once he had entered into a covenant or, or been forced into a covenant, whichever the case may be, whenever he had entered into a covenant with a suzerain, that was the only suzerain to whom he could owe loyalty. And if down the road he decided that he wanted to enter into a covenant with another suzerain and did so, that would be a breach of that loyalty. Okay? So, there's a word in the Hebrew for that, for that loyalty that was owed between parties in a, vassal, in a suzerain-vassal covenant. And that term is the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Okay? And it's actually a word that's used extensively throughout the Old Testament. It's translated a number of different ways. It's translated in some cases uh, love or loving kindness. Uh, uh, it's translated as mercy in some cases. Okay? So it has all kinds of connotations to it. But its literal translation is actually covenant faithfulness. Okay? So there, there is this hesed or this covenant faithfulness that is obligatory on both parties in this covenant relationship. And that will become more significant to us as we go on through the story of Genesis. Uh, So I I, I wanted to just clarify those things and add to some of the things we said last week. So So the problem, presumably, the problem that precipitated the War of the Kings was a breach of Hesed, a breach of this covenant loyalty. Okay, Because these these five kings had rebelled against their suzerain, presumably by the refusal to pay the tribute, to pay this annual percentage of their gross income to their suzerain, okay? who in this case was Ketileamar. Okay? So that's all uh, just by way of clarification from, uh, from last week. So we pick up the story then in uh, verse 17 of chapter 14. And it says then after his return from the defeat of Ketileamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them have their share. Okay? Uh, so, Abram now comes back from this battle and he's, he's coming back home. And the narrator here, Moses, uh, sets forth this story for us. And uh, there's a couple things that we should observe up front, or a couple things probably I should say up front, is one is we're studying Genesis, we're not studying Hebrews. Okay, So obviously, uh, this whole story of Melchizedek uh, brings before us 
all kinds of issues and raises some pretty significant theological issues which 2,000 years later get explicated, get explained to us in the book of Hebrews. Okay, But we are studying Genesis. So primarily we want to understand the story of Melchizedek as it's said in the context of Genesis. So we will look some at Hebrews and think a little bit about what Hebrews has to say, but we're not going to do a study of Hebrews chapter 7 here. Okay, uh, so Hebrews chapter 7, profoundly important scripture with profoundly important theological uh, themes in it that needs to, need to be understood. Uh, but we're not going to explore all that. Primarily, we're just going to think about Hebrews as it reflects to our story today and understanding our story today. So we're really studying Genesis. We're not studying Hebrews. Another thing I want to say as we start the passage is I want you to notice the way Moses, as he narrates the story to us, sets it forth in that he introduces to us first the king of Sodom. Okay, So the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram and then he kind of breaks the story of the king of Sodom and tells us about Melchizedek and the whole encounter with Melchizedek. And then he tells us again about, then he comes back to the king of Sodom and tells us about the king of Sodom and, and, and Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom. Moses is trying to communicate something in, in the structure of the passage there. Okay? There's something he's trying to set forward or set before our minds in the structure of the passage. Typically, you might think that in telling the story, it appears from the way the story flows, it appears that Abram first had his encounter with Melchizedek and had his dealings with Melchizedek, and subsequent to that, had his dealings with the king of Sodom. That's apparently how it happened. But it's interesting that Moses points out to us, before he discusses Melchizedek, he points out to us that the king of Sodom is there. So he raises the specter of the king of Sodom being there. Then he tells us about Melchizedek and the interaction with Melchizedek. And then he tells us about the subsequent interaction with the king of Sodom. My point is that as we reflect upon this story, it's not just that Moses wants us to know about Moses' interaction with Melchizedek and Moses' interaction with the king of Sodom, but to some degree he wants to set them in juxtaposition to each other. In other words, he wants us to see a contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And that's structurally, you see that even in the English, but as I understand it from the commentaries, even more so in the Hebrew, the structure is, is, is uh, constructed in such a way as to emphasize a contrast between these two guys. So one of the things we want to see as we're going through this passage, one of the things we want to observe is not only these two guys and, and, and Abram's interaction with them, but we want to understand and, and perceive this contrast between the two guys and the contrast between how Abram responds to one and how he responds to the other. Okay. So all of that being said, <clears throat> Abram returns now from the battle and he comes to this uh, area that's returned, referred to as the Valley of Shalva or the Valley of Kings. We don't know exactly where this is. There's uh, uh, some speculation on it. Uh, I think most people think it was a... Uh, a, a valley just very, uh, very near Jerusalem, just north of Jerusalem, a few miles, probably in that area, and probably named the Valley of the Kings after this particular event occurred. That it's the events described in this part of the passage that that lend the name to the to the valley. But anyway, he comes to the Valley of Kings, and he's met by these two kings. One is the king of Sodom, 
and the other is king of Salem, this guy by the name of Melchizedek. Okay, <clears throat> and uh, and as Melchizedek comes out, there are several things we want to think about uh, here in this whole encounter. One is we want to think about who is this guy Melchizedek, and then we want to think about what he does. What does Melchizedek do? And then the third thing that we want to think about is how how does Abram respond to him, or what is the significant significance of Abram's response? <clears throat> so. Uh, first of all, when he comes out, when, when Melchizedek comes out, he comes out bringing to Abram what? Bread and wine, okay? So he, he comes out with this, basically it's a, it's, a, it's a feast, presumably, okay? So the bread is not a reference just exclusively to bread, but it's the idea that he's bringing out food and wine. Now, some people have suggested he's doing this because all these soldiers are coming back from battle and they're exhausted and famished and all that sort of thing. But, of course, we realize as we go on in the story that they're bringing back with them a great deal of wealth and these guys have been eating all the way back, okay? Uh, that's very clear from the passage that, that Abram's guys have been eating from the plunder that they have taken, okay? So they're not really hungry uh, and they've been traveling now for several days after battle, so presumably they're kind of taking their time and they're resting as they're returning home. So they're not particularly exhausted and they're not particularly famished. They're just traveling, Okay. But when they get back to the vicinity of, of, uh, of home, they are met by uh, the king of Sodom and they're met by Melchizedek. And when Melchizedek comes out, he comes out with this very gracious, basically, victory banquet. Okay? He's coming out to celebrate Abram's great triumph. Okay? Now, this guy just appears on the scene out of the blue. Okay? We haven't had any, you know, we know about Sodom, so presumably they had a king, so we know about the king of Sodom. We read about him in the battle and all that sort of stuff. So we know about the king of Sodom. But this guy, Melchizedek, he just kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, there's been no mention of this place, Salem. We don't even know for sure whether it's Jerusalem or Shechem or, or exactly what city it was that he was a king of. Uh, most commentators, I think, lean towards the idea that it's probably later-day Jerusalem, uh, and, and that's what I lean towards, but we really don't know for sure. But he just kind of comes out of nowhere. But he comes and he brings this offering to Abram, or not an offering, but he brings this, this feast to celebrate with Abram and with the soldiers, with all these guys, to celebrate this great victory that Melchizedek says that God has given to Abram. Okay, and so he brings out this basically this royal feast of bread and wine to celebrate this victory. Okay, and then in the course of the narrative there, Moses tells us a little about about who this guy is and what do we learn about him. Okay, we learn that he's a priest, but he's not just any priest. Okay. There are a lot of priests those days. He's a priest of, of God Most High. Okay, and it's quite clear there. It's quite clear that they're talking about Jehovah. They're talking about the Creator of heaven and earth. He says he, he says he's the priest of God Most High, and then and then later Melchizedek himself refers to God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Okay. And uh, as Jim pointed out a few minutes ago, that word possessor there can be uh, actually translated several different ways. But it's the idea that he is the, he is the one who gives life to and, and sustains all of heaven and earth. So it's basically that he's the creator 
and possessor of everything. Okay, so so we discover then that Melchizedek is not just a priest of any one of the number of Canaanite religions that are floating around, but that this presumably Canaanite guy is in fact a priest of Yahweh. Okay. Now, this is a little puzzling to us because up till now we have no... Uh, uh, what we might refer to as cult or cultus uh, of, of uh, Jehovah, okay, of Yahweh. When I use the term cult or cultus, I'm not using it in the pejorative way that we almost invariably use it today. Whenever we use the term cult today, we're almost always referring to some kind of weird, you know, uh, religious group with a tyrant leader and, and aberrant behavior and aberrant doctrines and all sorts. And, and the word can be used that way. But oftentimes in, in a scholarly work, when you, read it, when you come across the word cult, it doesn't have that pejorative sense. But rather, the word cult really simply means a religious system. So you are a member of a cult. You may not like that, but you're the member of a cult in the sense that you are the member or, or participant in a religious system that has ways of doing things and ways of worshiping and a particular God that we worship. Okay? And so ultimately, as the, as the story of redemption proceeds, we, we eventually come to uh, what can be referred to as the mosaic cultus, that is, the mosaic religious system, okay, which is set forth at Sinai, okay, it involves the God that they worship, it involves all the sacrifices and the priesthood, the whole religious system, okay, and we understand that system. We've learned about that system since we were knee high to a grasshopper, and we know about those priests, and we know about that whole organization of of, of the faith of the Israelites uh, that was established there at Sinai. <clears throat> But what's interesting to us here is there's been no mention of priests up to this point in the story of Genesis. And our first introduction to the idea of a priest in the story of Genesis, as the story of Genesis unfolds, is this guy Melchizedek. And we discover that even though this predates the Mosaic cultus, we have here some kind of a some kind of a religious system that is obviously recognized by Abram in which this guy Melchizedek is a priest. And he is a priest of the Most High God. He's a, he is a priest of the God whom we worship and serve even today. Okay, So he is a priest and he is a king. And he is a priest king of Salem. Okay, So it's kind of interesting here that automatically, we, if, if Salem is, in fact, as I think it is, a reference to Jerusalem, then, then we have here the first priest king of Jerusalem. We will not have another priest king of Jerusalem until the Lord returns. Okay? But so, so, automatically, we begin to see maybe this guy is some kind of a type, some kind of a foreshadowing of something greater. Okay? So... So we have this this guy who's the priest king and 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 he's a priest of the most high God. What else do we know about him? Okay, he doesn't come asking for anything from Abram. He comes rather giving. He comes generously 
Honoring Abram, okay? Extending honor to Abram, okay? Now, when he gets to Abram, he brings this, this feast and he offers this feast, but he does something else that's significant. And what is that? He blesses him. Okay. Now, this becomes profoundly important when we get over to the book of Hebrews. Because we, begin, we discover, in, and, and it may not be obvious to us as we read the passage, being 21st century uh, Western uh, Christians, it may not really jump out at us. <laughs> but to the reader of Genesis, this would jump out. The idea of blessing or giving a blessing or blessing someone kind of has two meanings in Scripture. And, and, and oftentimes we'll come across the passage in Scripture that talk about blessing God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All those within me, bless His holy name. Okay. Now, when the, when the word is used in that kind of a context, the idea is simply the idea of giving praise to. Okay. So it's the idea of praising God. So the idea... Of course, we know that the word to bless or blessing is the idea of happiness or to make happy or whatever. The idea is that when we talk about blessing God, we are, we are offering to God our praise and our adoration with the, with the purpose and the intent of, of giving Him pleasure and making Him happy. Okay? That's the idea of it. Okay? So it has the idea, primarily the idea of praise. But it's, but it's also used in another sense in Scripture. And this is the sense in which one person blesses another. Okay. Now, I need to clarify something here. We use the term pretty loosely today, so it's kind of taken on different meaning today than it does in, in a scriptural context. I might say, you know, well, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, kind of having a rough day or whatever, and I ran across a brother in Christ in Walmart, and, you know, and he shared a verse. He blessed me with a verse. You know, he and the idea is, that he just he did he did something that encouraged me or lifted my spirits or whatever. Okay, that's a ter- that's the way we often use the term today. Uh, it's not used that way really much that I can think of at all in Scripture. Okay, not that we shouldn't use it that way today. That's fine. We understand what we're trying to say, so that's okay. But it's not typically used that way in Scripture. When in Scripture, when someone in Scripture is blessing someone else, not blessing the Lord. That's a different sense or different meaning. But when someone is blessing someone else in Scripture, invariably it's a greater blessing a lesser. It's someone who is endowed with some kind of position of greatness who is extending either by prayer or by pronouncement God's favor on someone who is under their care or under their authority. Okay. And we'll see some examples of that as we go through Genesis. For example, we will see uh, Jacob blessing his son, uh, or Isaac, excuse me, blessing his son Jacob. We will see an example of Jacob blessing his 12 sons. Jacob being the greater, the 12 sons being the lesser. When we're talking about greater in this sense, we're not talking about intrinsically greater. Okay, That would offend our democratic uh, uh, value system if we talked in those terms. We're not talking about somebody being intrinsically greater in value. We're simply talking about their position within the system. In this case, within the religious system, within the cultus. Okay? So, so, throughout Scripture, you have the example of someone blessing someone else. 
But Hebrews makes it quite clear that when someone blesses someone else in this sense, in this context that we're talking about, it's always the greater blessing the lesser. Okay? So Hebrews uses that principle to tell us what about Melchizedek? He's greater than who? Abram. Okay. Now think about that. Okay. We've been studying all about Abram and we've been learning about how great this guy is. And now he's, this guy's got this, all this military power and he's got this economic power and political influence because he controls the entire king's highway from Pedaharan all the way down uh, to, the Sinai Peninsula, to the Sinai Desert. Uh, he's got all this money. He's got all this power. He's got all this influence. But more than that, he has the promise of God. He has the blessing of God on his life. And he has been declared by God to be the blessing bearer. So we have this picture of Abram that he's just this exceedingly great guy. Great not in the sense of we like him, but great in the sense of powerful and influential and the hand of God on his life and, 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 and a key man, a foundational man in the whole unfolding drama of redemption. That's how great he is. And then just kind of almost cavalierly, we read through this passage and we discover that whoever this guy Melchizedek is, he's greater than Abram. Well, that'll just kind of set us back a bit. So Abram is blessed by Melchizedek. But what else happens between these two guys? Abraham gives him a tenth. Okay. Abram gives him a tenth. Which is, another, which is something else that communicates to us the greatness of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know who this guy Melchizedek is, but I'm pretty impressed. Here's a guy who is very possibly a Canaanite. Who is a priest of God Most High. Who in his greatness within the context of God's religious order exceeds the greatness of Abram. So much so that he is in a position of authority with which to bestow greater blessing on Abram than he's already received. But also he's in a position to receive from Abram a tithe, a tenth of all. And again, Hebrews makes an issue out of that. Hebrews points out to us in Hebrews chapter 7 that, that this is pretty significant, that Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews points out that because Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, in a very real sense, all the tithes that all the children of Israel brought within their religious order, within the Mosaic Levitical system, within their cultus, all the, all the, the offerings that were offered through the Aaronic priesthood were really, through the lines of Abram, offered to Melchizedek. This is really a big guy. This is an important guy in the whole scheme of redemption. Yeah. Now, Christians, and this is, I know you've been chomping at the bit waiting to me address this issue. The question is, who is the guy? Okay. 
And Christians basically view him as uh, from two perspectives. One is that Melchizedek is presumably a uh, just uh, just a normal human being, a king, uh, possibly even a Canaanite king, uh, the ruler of presumably the city of Jerusalem or some other city named at the time Salem, uh, and and that. And that because he just kind of appears out of nowhere in the context of Scripture and then just kind of disappears and we never hear from him again until Psalm 110 when the psalmist refers to him and then again he disappears until we, we uh, run into him again in Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> that, he, that really he's... This is, a, this is a guy who is a type. He's a foreshadowing of, of Christ. Okay. We do understand... That he is, that that the priestly order that he's a part of, whatever that means, it's not the Aaronic order, because because we discover from Hebrews that there are two things that qualified Melchizedek and that qualify Christ to be in the Melchizedek order, and one of the things is that is that their order or I should say there are two things that are characteristic of Melchizedek's order that are not characteristic of the Aaronic order. And, and one of them is that uh, the Melchizedek order is not genealogically based. Okay? The Aaronic order is genealogically based, meaning you had to be a descendant of Aaron okay, to be uh, in the Aaronic priesthood. But the Melchizedek priesthood is not genealogically based. Okay? So the question is, if it's not genealogically based then upon what is it based? And Hebrews makes it very clear. It's based upon the power of an indestructible life. That's what Hebrews says. Okay. So, so in that sense, Christ, the Lord Jesus, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us, because he has this indestructible life. Okay. So when people start reading that in Hebrews, then oftentimes many Christians come to the conclusion, well, it kind of sounds like Melchizedek's really more than just some man back there in the Old Testament who's a type of Christ. It sounds like maybe Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? Now, there's some legitimate reasons in Hebrews to conclude that, and it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be completely out of the norm for, what, for the story as it unfolds in Genesis because we are going to encounter a story here in a few chapters in which Abram very clearly does encounter and it's very clear from the context that he encounters the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be completely out of the order of the context for Abram to have experienced or encountered the pre-incarnate Christ here in this story of Melchizedek. So you're kind of left with two Two options is is Melchizedek uh, a, a great uh, man of God of the Old Testament who serves as a type of Christ, or is Melchizedek the pre-incarnate Christ? Okay, yes, sir. Okay. Abram refers, and every place else I've ever read in Scripture, as the Lord God, 
most high, or the God of heaven. The, the word the is not is not there in referring to Melchizedek. Does that suggest, um, well, I guess it's probably, I think I'm going to it does suggest a higher or a greater relationship, more direct relationship. Is, is that what that means? You mean the fact that it doesn't have the article in in the description? Uh, and you're asking if that implies a greater relationship of Melchizedek to the Lord. Is that your question? I don't know the answer to your question. I, 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 didn't, I don't attach any significance to the absence of the article there. <clears throat> but you may be right. So. Yeah, but you got me off track. Because <laughs> all these people are waiting to hear my opinion on this. And what if I didn't give it? You know, we could skate right through this and not even address this question because, in reality, you don't need to know the answer to this question to understand either this passage or the point of Hebrews. Which is why great men and women of God down through the history have come down on both sides of this question. Because the understanding of the passage doesn't hinge on whether or not you understand Melchizedek to be merely a type or whether you understand him to be the pre-incarnate Christ. I've held both positions. I think at this point I lean towards the position that he is a type. Okay? But I've held quite strongly in the past to the idea that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. So I'm going to leave it up to you. You can decide for yourself. I'm not sure that it's explicitly clear in Scripture, uh, but uh, given all that's said, kind of weighing the pros and cons, uh, I kind of come down on the side uh, that, that, Ab- that Melchizedek is a type. But if he is a type, you, we still must understand how great this guy is. And that's the point that Hebrews is trying to make, that this guy is so great. And, 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 and the point of Hebrews that he's trying to make all the way through the book of Hebrews, he just keeps hammering on this all the way book, through the book of Hebrews, is the superiority of Christ over everything. Okay? It's the superiority of Christ over Moses and over the angels and over the priests and you know, over the whole Aaronic priesthood. It's Christ is superior to everything. So don't go back to this old cultist. Don't go back to the old Mosaic system, the old Levitical system. Don't go back to that because Christ is superior to that. And, and in order to do that, and one of the ways that he does that in the book of Hebrews is he illustrates that, that the Aaronic priesthood is actually inferior to the priesthood, to the order of the priesthood of which Melchizedek was a priest. Okay. Now, somebody might ask, well, Rick, what do you do with the passage in Hebrews where it says he was without father and mother, etc., etc., etc.? Well, actually, that's a Greek expression. Within the t- culture of the time, that was a Greek expression. Somebody would say, so-and-so was out, was, is without father and mother. <laughs> Typically, what that meant, that could mean one of several things. One is it could mean simply that their parents are really unimportant. So it might be somebody who achieved a level of significance in the culture and the society, but they, didn't, they weren't well-born, in other words. They weren't born of famous parents or important parents. They really had no father or mother. Okay? So in the Greek, that expression, the Greeks used that expression to communicate the idea of somebody who was, who was born uh, and achieved some prominence or some significance, but, but they really weren't well-born, and so they really were... They, they had no father or mother, okay? Which if, that, if you understand that it's sometimes used that way, it was also used to, uh, to refer to an illegitimate child. Uh, uh, so it had several different meanings. But, 
The idea is this is a Greek expression that was used. So as the writer of Hebrews is using this expression, he's using something that in the context of the culture could be, mean to under, could be meant to, uh, under, or could be understood to mean simply that we really don't know who these parents are or his parents are insignificant. Okay? And, and the significance of that is, is that's in stark contrast to the Aaronic priesthood where your parentage is everything. Yeah, Rick. Or end of life, right? Because we don't know anything that we don't know have any idea what happened to him. Yeah, and 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 to be honest with you, that expression in Hebrews is the one that gives me pause and makes me go, well, maybe he is the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, so it's difficult. Yeah, uh, Kevin. Yeah, that's passage he was, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> well, in the sense that he is only, a, if he is only a type, the sense of that would be uh, the way the narrative, he, he is a type of Christ in the way that the narrative is presented to us. So, in other words, the narrative doesn't tell us about his parentage and the narrative tells us nothing about the end of his life. He just kind of is inserted there three verses in the book of Genesis and that's all we know about him. So if in fact he was simply a type, that would be the idea. Not that he really didn't have an end of life, but that there's no end of life represented to us in his story. Okay. So, uh, but that would, that would be the explanation if you understood him to be merely a type. Okay. So it's, it's it's a difficult one to balance out. Yeah. I have a question. Um, do you? I guess that we think that Melchizedek and Abraham and Abraham never heard of each other or seen each other before this particular. Thing. I don't assume that. You don't. No. No, I think Abram probably did know about this guy. Who, I mean, if it, you know, if in fact he wasn't the pre-incarnate Christ, if he was the king of Salem, if he was actually the physical king of a physical city of Salem in Canaan, and this guy was a worshiper of the true and living God, I'm pretty sure Abram did know about him. He's walked all the way through the whole land of Canaan by now. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure he has, uh, but it, it doesn't tell us. It just because none of that is important to the story. What's important to the story is that this guy shows up and that Abram offers to him, uh, that he gives to Abram this blessing and, and, and Abram offers to him tithe. And we go, what's the big deal here? Well, it only becomes a big deal when we finally get to Psalm 110 and the Lord tells us about the Messiah, that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we go, wow, what's that about? And we don't even find out what that's about until we get to the book of Hebrews and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews uses all of that to explain to us then how great Christ is. Okay? So, so that's, that's, the, that's the, the theological significance of what's happening here. But there are some other interesting things that are going on. So, Abram uh, pays tithes to this guy. Okay? He pays tithes out of what? Of all. I'm wondering here, what's the king of Sodom thinking about this time? Very well done, Jim. Thank you for that segue. It's <laughs> exactly the point I wanted to make. We have, while all this is going on, the king of Sodom standing there, okay? 
And Abram is paying to him a tithe of all. Presumably what he means by that is all of the plunder. All that he has recovered in this battle. Which means what? All of what? Some of the stuff that the king of Sodom yeah. thought he should have. Yeah. In other words, of all is a reference to all the wealth of the Transjordan that Abram has just recovered. Which includes the wealth of Sodom. Now, how was that again? What caused this whole war in the first place? Yeah, the king of Sodom would not pay his tribute to Ketelamar. Now he's standing there and he's watching Abram, who has all of his wealth in his hands. And the king of Sodom, Sodom sees the tribute that he refused to pay to Ketelamar through Abram, now paid to whom? Melchizedek. But Melchizedek is what? Melchizedek's office is what? He's a priest. In other words, he's a mediator. So when Abram is paying this tenth to Melchizedek, to whom is he really paying it? To God. He's paying it to God because Melchizedek is only a priest. He's only a mediator. So, what the king of Sodom is now seeing happen is that the tribute he refused to pay to Ketelamar because of his greed and his selfishness and whatever other reasons, he now sees, involuntary to him, is being paid to God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. Now, why is Abram doing that? Abram is paying a tenth to Melchizedek, really to God. Remember, remember the whole context of the culture. Remember the whole context of the covenant. What Abram is doing here is he's recognizing that God is his suzerain. And Abram is paying his tribute as God's vassal. He is paying his tribute to God. Now, in the context, when someone failed to pay their tribute to their suzerain, what was it? What was that act? It was rebellion. It was a breach of Hesed. It was a breach of covenant faithfulness to refuse to pay one's tribute to his suzerain. Abraham's not going to do that. Abraham's not going to, and even though at this point Abraham's not really yet fully into a covenant relationship with God, that doesn't happen until the next chapter, but, but already we see this whole mindset of Abram. God is his suzerain. God is his Lord. And, and covenant faithfulness, Hesed, requires that he pay this tribute. Now remember, we don't have here yet the Mosaic Law. So in the context here, he's, 
He's not doing this out of his sense of compulsion from the Mosaic law. He's doing it rather out of this cultural context in which he lives, which is that a vassal always pays tribute to his suzerain. And it was often 10%. So we see then that the tithe, if you will, predates the Mosaic law. And it really has its whole foundation or concept, not in the Mosaic law, but in this idea of covenant relationship with God. Now, I happen to be one of those who believes that when you get into the New Testament, that the tithe is no longer mandated. I have read through the whole New Testament looking for any indication or hint in the New Testament that the tithe is mandated. I personally don't see it. I know there are others that do, and I respect their opinion, but I just... I just disagree. I just don't see it in the New Testament anywhere. But I do see the concept of covenant faithfulness in the New Testament. And I do see that sense that God is my suzerain and I am his vassal. And I owe him hesed. I owe him covenant faithfulness. And I ought to be paying my tribute to him. Now, whether I pay him 8% or 10% or 12% or 20% or 50% or whatever it is, that's not the issue. The issue is, what is is the tribute I owe to God? And am I paying it? And if I am not paying that tribute, I am actually in an act of rebellion against God. If I am not financially, materially, paying to God the tribute that is due to Him because He is my suzerain, I am in rebellion. And as we'll see when we get in chapter 15, the consequences of a breach of Hesed got pretty vile, pretty, pretty brutal. Okay? They cut the guy in pieces. Okay? So this whole thing about breach of Hesed is pretty significant in the context. And... And I think that it's equally as important to us today, whether you believe in the tithe or not, the the strict 10% tithe. Whether or not you believe in the strict 10% tithe or not, this whole idea of the importance of hesed, this importance of covenant faithfulness to God, which includes, among other things, this idea that I owe to Him a tribute out of the material wealth that He has given to me. It's is as important in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. As we will see, as we will discover as we go on through Genesis, fortunately the grace of God keeps His hand from acting against us for our breach of Hesed, the way Ketelamar acted against the kings of the Pentapolis. But it's what we deserve. Yes, Rick? Maybe it changes the word O to I have the privilege. Pardon? Maybe it changes the word O to I have the privilege. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay. Well, we didn't get to the king of Sodom. We'll talk about that next week and, and then try and get on into chapter 15 where uh, Abram begins to have this vision of God. Okay?